TT Pro Talk Podcast, the fastest way to increase your knowledge with the brightest minds of physical therapy in your pocket. Welcome to PT Pro Talk Podcast. I am Mariana Tondo, your host for today. In this episode, I interview John Vanderkart, and he is a physical therapist with over 30 years of experience. And he will talk about the importance of having a broad clinical skill set and matching the approach to the patient. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to PT Pro Talk. How are you feeling today, Dr. John? I'm doing very well, and I'm uh, John Vanderkar. I do not hold a doctorate, though. I, sometimes I forget about these titles, that they are different. So it happened before. So, okay, John. <laughs> um, Which is how, fine. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling quite well, thank you. And uh, thank you for having me on your podcast. Thank you for coming here and share a little bit of your experience. So let's jump right in. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself, your career, and how did you get to where you are right now? Certainly. Uh, it was a long time ago. I mean, I've been practicing now. I've completed 33 years of practice, and I still love it. I still love treating patients. I've always been someone who continues to treat patients, even when I had other sort of hybrid roles over the years. Years ago, I was originally a biology student and actually was completing and have completed a degree, an undergraduate degree in biology and looking to follow up in graduate school in zoology, but started to realize the intense sort of isolation of lab work was really probably not going to suit me well in the long run. So I made a, a late in my education shift and went to PT school at uh, the State University of New York Upstate Medical Center and received my degree in physical therapy. It was really driven by that sort of need to feel using those same kind of tools of investigation and science-based sort of decision-making, but wanting it to be more involved directly with people and that personal interaction. And for me, it's been the right choice because it worked out really well. I then went on uh, later to go to a post-professional master's program at Damon College focused on uh, orthopedics, and that's sort of where uh, my formal education has taken me. Uh, these, these are in years so far in the past that I think it's uh, almost differential. Like those, that was back in my PT degree originally was in the 80s, the 1980s, and then the, the 90s was uh, when, I, when I did the graduate work. That's a long career, right, so far? Yes. So, so let's talk about um, all your specialization certifications. Sure. So, um, so I know you are an orthopedic uh, certified specialist, certified mulligan practitioner, uh, certified integrated manual therapist, and advanced hip clinician, uh, among others. So... What skills did you develop during uh, these certifications and throughout your career? And how do you think that they help you on your practice? Well, I think it's always interesting. For me, looking back at it, it, all those things that you go through, like the OCS exam, the Orthopedic Clinical Specialist exam, I took that originally back in the late 90s after completing graduate school because I felt like I had, I had been on top of the current level of where we were at at the time as far as the research and the implementation 
and what was sort of expected for that level. Uh, I've since, I've taken the exam twice more. I've always done it by exam. I took the exam uh, a couple years ago. So I'll probably, I may have to take it one more time. You never know. It depends on how long I want to practice. But I think preparing for those exams, I think has more to do with the, the integration and thinking of bringing yourself tighter in your thinking, much like having students. It brings you tighter in your thinking and your own ability to be discerning about the tools you're using and not just being sort of loosely like, oh, yeah, I think, you know, we should be thinking about range of motion first or, you know, some sort of loose aggregation. You have the real tight definitions down of what other people have developed as clinical sort of pathways and tools. And I think that's the advantage as well about following through with any school of thought. I know you are uh, MDT, um, McKenzie person, which is wonderful. I have many friends who are, and I have great value and feelings about that. In fact, that's one of my favorite books are the, are the, the bigger, the McKenzie books on uh, the lumbar spine and the cervical spine. When you have the two, two volume series, I own those. I love them because I like the act, the in-depth nature of how they go through things. Um, To me, that's also what you get when you go through a series or a course, whether that's, you know, when you look at Maitland, Mulligan, Keltenborn, University of St. Augustine's graduate programs, any, any school or organizational thought, I like the idea of, of people thinking like, yeah, I want to have a lot of choices, but to have one or two that you really go through very keenly and understand deeply so that, that you have a reference or a base of how you then move forward with other classes. Because it's always nice to add other tools in, but it's nice to have some plan or programmatic base structure you can build those others off of because you have to develop your own, your own style as well. They give you tools. Anybody, you're, everyone's smart who goes to PT school. I haven't met a dumb one. <laughs> what we have to do is use those tools in our own way, matching how you perceive things and interact with patients. That's a much, much trickier part, but I do think that everyone you add on after having some base really gives you different facets of sort of thinking about particular things whether it's connective tissue, whether it's about mobilization, whether it's about exercise progression, whether it's about how do you produce feedback for patients, all of these things gain so much more sort of differential angles and it's not linear. You don't have the one way of I'm doing this because as we all know, we run into patients and the one way we try and then it doesn't work. So what are you left to do? Well, it's great to have colleagues and friends to help with, but the more you can sort of continue to develop and learn from them as well, right? Learning from your colleagues is, I think, as valuable as almost anything else because you can have those, those deeper conversations. But I think, you know, developing those additional skills broadens that approach. And you can make mistakes, but you have to realize you're, you have to – our goal is to help that person do better. And it's okay to do something and it doesn't produce results, but you just can't keep doing it. You then have to, you have to try something different and to have those already thought of goes a long way. I think it's nice to develop your reasoning and be always revising these concepts and the different techniques. So if something doesn't work, you kind of have in your mind, what is the next step? What I'm going to try next? So I think that's, as you said, like McKenzie for me is my base. So it's how I assess the patient is the way that I look at the patient and then if it doesn't work as I want it, I have the, my other tools that I start trying to see what works best. 
And as you said, every patient is different. Everyone um, reacts in a different way. So we are gonna, you're going to talk about that in a little while. So we talked before about having a broad clinical skill set, that that's important. So what skills that you think are important to a physical therapist? Well, several come up, and you asked such good questions about this, because in, in, in reference to your comments you just made as well, if we have an ability where we've learned a sort of algorithmic sense of how I like to go through an evaluation, how does an individual clinician like to work their way through this broad scope of information, the history, the physical, observational, all the things we're going to do to a patient and make sense of it. But then by, by having the skills of observation be honed in, it doesn't matter how you choose to do it. I mean, there's lots of ways in which we can aggregate data and then break it down efficiently. But to have that organized so that you, you have it so smooth that you're then your observational focus can be very keen. I mean, to me, those skills of observation are sometimes overlooked a little as people want to move on to checking off like the special. I mean, we all do. We, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not maligning it. I use every single one of the special tests and everything else. And we look at the clinical relevancy of it and does it have enough efficacy. But a lot of times we can't jump ahead of the idea of who's in front of me. How anxious do they look? How tight are the muscles? What is their posture? Because basic things, how are they breathing? How are they moving? Are they guarding themselves in any way that also makes sense to the history I'm getting? Because sometimes it's sure it's all mechanical, it's tinker toy nuts and bolts, and we're, we're looking at muscles and tendons and ligaments and neuromuscular control. But we can't pretend that we aren't also looking at a human who's anxious, who has a life, who has an other history, who may have other physical conditions that they although we've asked, may or may not have fully divulged to us. So we have to account for those as well. So to me, observational skills are keen, and people should, when they can, take the extra time. When you can watch people, always try to watch someone walking when they don't actually know you're watching them walking. Watching them stand up, watching them sit down, those small things about how are they breathing when you're doing the interview part of your exam. I think these are skills that are, the observational component needs to be always focused as much as everything else. It's the one thing that I've had a lot of, you know, had a lot of staff over the years at different places, you know, and uh, a lot of different students. And I think that's one thing that sometimes gets a little less intention. And I thought I'd bring it up today. Yeah. So still talking about that, about the different types of patients that we see in our practice, um, and everyone responds in a different way. So how do you think that the personal perspective that each individual patient brings with them um, to our clinics and how this influence on their treatment? Yeah, the, I think that what we always have to think about is who we're treating. Because in, in an easy example that may be a bit trite, but it's a way of thinking about it, you know, if I have some people who come from an exercise background that's, you know, we look at all the differences, right? Some people know exercise background, some dance, some yoga, some martial arts, some, you know, physical training, weightlifting, there's different, you know, we get runners, you get, you know, these sort of, you, you can put them in boxes of how they present a little. All of them come with a 
previous knowledge and history of things that have worked and haven't for them, also a language that they speak. People also bring cultural language with them as well. When we talk, school usually goes over those things. They don't talk about as much the particular culture of runners versus the culture of CrossFit versus the culture of dance versus the culture of people that are very involved in the use of yoga as exercise versus the culture of, let's just say, speed skaters. There's, you have to make sure that when we're talking to them, because we know the information we want to give them, they are here to be helped. But if you crosstalk or use terms that don't match with the verbiage and style that they're used to hearing and coaching from them, they may think you're telling them they're wrong. You want to make sure what you're doing is adding information to them and not negating or belittling what they already know and understand because they use a different term or they don't use the proper uh, choice of words or, you know, how many times have we heard a person who's just from the general public rotator cup, my rotatory cup, my, you know, or they'll say something you're like, interesting, you know, and I, I rarely correct people at that point in time. I, you know, I always let them say, well, yeah, and it's, uh, you know, it's these muscles. And we always try to be, in addition, adding information, never sort of correcting or being sort of the police of uh, linguistics. Because the more you can get that winning over of the person and express to them that however they express it to you, as long as you're understanding what they're saying, this is a plus. And, and I always try to make them feel very capably uh, part of the team. Like they need to be involved. And so avoid trying to shut people down in any way possible. And sometimes you can do it without knowing it, you know, because, you know, like I say, the different groups will come with different sort of histories as they bring it along. So I think that's interesting because I was just thinking about my patients. So sometimes uh, when I see some engineers, for example, they like, they like to know all the details. They want to understand the biomechanics because that's the way they think. So for these kind of patients, I realize that sometimes if I give a more explanation, more in the biomechanic details, how you move, what your disc does, how your spine moves, trying to make them understand in this way, it's more effective than in general terms as we use to other patients, for example, that they don't understand uh, the, the scientific terms or they don't, you don't connect with them using the terms. So it's, it's funny how you see like how the different types of patients react to these languages, as you said. So I think language is very, it's very important. And look at the profile of the patient and know how to interact, how to connect. How do you think you're going to connect better? Um, which examples to give and what language to use? And also talking about the history, I just thought about another patient that I had that when he came, the first thing that he said it was like, oh, on the clinic that I was seeing previously, we did this, that, and that didn't work. So I already know that I, I shouldn't start trying with that movements or that things that he did previously because I, I, someone already tested me and that didn't work. So paying attention to these things during our history, I think it's very important because give you advantage to start um, already trying something new that could have has more chances to work. You may even know that they may not have gotten proper instruction in those things before. And those That's things true, might true. be the things you need to do. But guess what? That is not where you need to start. Because I'm a big believer that early on, people are smart. 
they may not be educated in some of the things that we're dealing with them in. And in fact, I think from, from my perspective and having, you know, staff over, you know, I managed other multi-clinic sites and things with getting a lot of feedback from a lot of therapists over the years. We really sometimes can't forget that we're very accepting of what is considered common knowledge, but it isn't common knowledge. Like basic biomechanics, basic physiology that you think sometimes would be, be normal is not normal. And then, you know, you've been practicing and you know that this is true, but for some of our newer graduates, they'll find that it will, can be shocking. You can have someone who's a PhD in, uh, you know, IT. They do not have any sense that the muscle is made out of spindles or that there's, you know, that each one has a nerve to, t- I mean, it's just amazing sort of the level of wh- where you're at. So I'm a big believer that we have to have a winning connection on that first visit. Produce something that is a cause and effect relationship. Particularly like when I have someone who has back pain, they come in, they're very afraid to move. They don't want to bend forward. This is where you can use some of the tools. You know, I, I often will use hands-on stabilization, a mulligan technique, some other things to initiate motion with them and show them, look, you can bend forward. You're not broken. You have a problem, but you're not unstable because they feel like they're going to fall apart like two Legos coming apart and they're going to be two pieces leaving if they bend forward. You have to overcome that and bridge that. Same thing with, particularly for me, low backs and shoulders. You know, I really try to show them that we can move the joint. It doesn't have to be horribly painful to sort of break up this fear cycle on that. But with the same with any injury, if you can show them something like, look, what this is what we're going to do and this is the result you're going to get and let them feel it themselves, then the buy-in's better, then they're more likely to follow through and do the things you want them to do. So I, I think those your points about is with your engineer uh, patient in that we have to speak in a way that allows them buy-in, understanding, and so that they follow through with what we want them to do. Yeah, I think that's the key. You have to find a way to connect to make them uh, engage on the treatment. So find a way to, to make this connection. And for example, these patients that we see that have fear of movement, they don't want to move. They are super scared. You see by the way that they move, they stand up, they sit down. So on that type of patients, we already know that we have to spend more time in education than others because they, they have to understand what we want, what we are looking uh, after on the assessment and why moving is important, why we wanted them to do something. So we know we have to spend a little um, longer on the, um, on the assessment and explaining the treatment, our plan of care to try to um, gain these patients to participate and help us on the treatment, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I think the control effect is really positive. When patients gain some sort of control over this. So it's not just this, I don't know why it hurts. It just hurts whether that's post-surgical as we see often, like what's going on? Why is it swollen? They said it would swell, but not this much. You know, oftentimes patients are told this is going to be painful and it's going to swell, but they don't really understand that until their knee is painful and swollen. And they, they really think this can't be normal, but in fact, it is a normal response, but getting them to get to an accepting an understanding that this isn't forever that if we work at it, it's going to improve, you know, those, those things early on oftentimes have significant benefits as we move to the, into harder aspects of rehabilitation. Yeah, for sure. And my next question, we kind of answering, but let's see if you have something else to add here. So 
Um, why do you think that it's so important to have a broad uh, clinical skill set and match uh, the approach to the patient? The ability to make a connection with a patient. First of all, it's, it's personal, right? That's the one thing I love about physical therapy. We're not fixing toasters. You know, you, if you have a toaster, you can fix it any way you want. You don't have to ask the toaster. You just repair the parts. People are very different. We have to have them as an active participant in doing this most of the time. There are times when you, we do things and it's, we're doing it and it works and they don't have to be as involved, but 90% or better, you have to have them really involved in what's going on and the buy-in has to be strong if you really want the long-term positive, long-term benefits from these things. So to me, the variety is always important because you may think, I may have guessed that, you know, I think I understand where this person's coming from and I go to do something. And then as I'm doing a certain technique, some people, you know, it depends. It's just their perception of me as a person or the clinic or the, or how they felt that day. You know, I'm too much on their personal space. They want less personal space. I need to have options. Oh, they don't, you know, Oh, they like to lean back. No, they really don't like that because they have sinus problem. Okay. I can do it a different way. Oh, I, there's tightness in their neck. You want to have these different varieties of ways of going at it because some people, the technique, like I can tell you, mulligan, if I use the, some simple examples, if we use a mulligan technique on someone, but they're like, oh, I don't feel comfortable with that kind of, that kind of movement while you're doing this. I, you know, okay, let's, let's stop. We're going to go back. Let's go to a positional a patient position. Maybe we're going to do graded mobilization instead. Okay, now let's go to mobile. Let's go to mobilization with movement. Now let's go to active integrated motion as the patient moves along. Sometimes you may say, "I want to." Like perfect example would be, "I want to move this patient." Clearly, the best choice would be moving them through a McKenzie style program of progression. But they're hung up. They don't want they their pain or their apprehension stops them. Well, if you put in some easy graded modes, you, which is part of it, but you think of it in different terms. You they don't want to go to the position I want. Let me go to a different one. Let me move them around and put in piece, piece the tools from several schools of thought into the structure of progression you want through the one you want to do, and then you get yourself right back on track. I think of it as driving around an obstacle in a road. I don't have to totally give away the, the plan I want, but sometimes I have to go around an obstacle, and I'll do things that sort of get the patient to that point. Yeah, and, and then the clinical experience comes to that too, because in the beginning of my career, I lost a lot of patients because I couldn't, I didn't have this, how do you say, like this feeling to make small adjustments or realize when the patient is not understanding and not engaging. Sometimes we want to do things our way and, and you realize that make the patient go away and that it, he doesn't come back. So uh, I had so, I have some examples in my mind while you were talking. I was here thinking. So I have a patient one day that he had uh, shoulder pain, and I assessed his neck, and it was super clear for me that it was coming from his neck. And I tried to explain him. That was like right when I first started McKenzie, and I was trying to explain because I knew why, and I was excited about it and trying to explain. And the patient was like, "But I'm here." to treat my shoulder. You didn't touch my shoulder and he didn't like it. And he, and he got better on that first visit, but he didn't come back because he didn't like that. I didn't touch his shoulder, but I knew that I was doing the right thing. And I was kind of stubborn. I was like, I'm not going to do it because I know that's 
not the the cows you know so we have to learn how to communicate and how to give them the information in a way that doesn't conflict with their uh what they believe their view of the problem and what they think you should do because they come with a with some expectations and then you do something completely different even if it works and that they get better sometimes they are not happy with it because you didn't touch their shoulder for example so for me it was crazy that they was like he was better i made his shoulder pain better he was moving better but but he he wasn't happy with that so very true and i think this is one of these and again you've learned from that i think for me looking at where i am in my career and i you know i see young professionals and people coming up i would say the one thing you want to do is use those as informative tools and share these experiences with other colleagues. I mean, I, I see that I'm, you know, I've always treated patients. I mean, I've had times when I've been doing a lot more administrative work over the years and less patients. I'm fortunate now I can do more patients and there's some less, you know, things that I have to do uh, clinically. Uh, I love where I work right now and that that's works out really well for me. But if I just did 33 years of treating patients, that I could have done 33 years and not changed a thing and, you know, and have not grown or gained ground. All the excitement, never lose that sense of like, well, you know, if this isn't good, there is someone usually around, whether it's so much better now. Because even if it's a small clinic, online, watch podcasts. I watch them almost pathologically. I watch people online and watch information that comes from things that aren't just from our own experience, watch things about stuff like, I am no expert in yoga. I watch videos about yoga so I can understand it better that way. Take online, take an online course, read another book about something that you don't treat all the time. Just because there may be clues or tips you can glean to use for other patients, even if you never see people in that one area, uh, as far as a practice area, there are always tips and things to learn. A lot of smart people out there always great things to learn. And I also think that it stops burnout because I know lots of people who are, who are the same age that I am that practice that, that don't see patients anymore. They, they, they had enough. They couldn't, you know, it just became too much of a grind for them that way. But I think some of it, unfortunately, not everyone, some it's a choice. They wanted to do other stuff. That's great. But for some people, they let it become a grind because they lose that sort of resharpening the tools kind of attitude you just enjoy the process never lose that enjoyment because it's uh, it is a professional gift that we have doing this job you can always learn new things you can always learn from other people and then when you apply it it's it reinvigorates you as you use these things with the people that you're seeing uh, yeah. i think that's my advice as a shall we say old hand in the profession I think that that's it's so exciting for me, at least, because my when I graduated, I was like, I want to learn everything to be able to help everybody. And you have that idea and then you start studying. And then I think that's what we, we should always have in mind. Learn something new when you can figure out the problem, you can have a good result. That intrigues me. I was like, I have, I'm missing something. I want to know what I'm missing. And then you think, what's the next course that I think is going to help me? to solve the biggest number of cases that I see. So I think that's what, at least that's what moves me and I'm always trying to, to find the next step. What else 
Should I know what else I'm missing? Where are my weakest points on my treatment? Why should I get better? So I think when we lose that interesting, that, uh, that thing that moves us and, and makes us look for something else, then I think probably you're going to start to getting burnout and losing interesting yeah. about it. And there's always, there's always factors that want to, you know, slow us down. I mean, we live in the real world. It's dealing with paperwork. It's dealing with other extraneous things about scheduling and patients changing schedules and, you know, things not working out the way we wanted, or you're getting odd requests from certain, you know, physician or something you think you need to do different. You got to do a lot of legwork and talk to them and call the office and, you know, all these things that sort of aren't exactly treating patients. But I think as long as when you, you just always stop and, and sort of step back on yourself, sort of that meta look at yourself and say, look what I get to do for a job and really enjoy that. The other thing I will say is always make sure the patient does exactly what you want during an exam with exercises. I'm, I find for me, and it may not be for everyone else, but I am very, very particular. I would rather they do the fewer things, exactly what I want on exam, and exactly what I want with exercise, than to do more. Because we're more, I find you, you get more quality out of that precision in exam, and precision with, uh, with home, particularly homework with patients. And sometimes you think that we show, we demonstrate, it did everything, and they go back home, and they do it wrong, and then they came back, and like, oh, I'm worse, I'm not bad. I was like, show me your exercise, and then they show something completely different. I was like, where did you come from? Like, that, that wasn't exactly what I showed you. But that's, I think, it, it happens, and it happens a lot, so you have to be careful and, and try to teach them in a way that they are going to do it and not overwhelm them with a lot of exercise. Then they're going to do everything wrong. So, well, I think that's a really, that's a, that's a keen point. You know, I rarely initiate people with more than, you know, unless we've got some protocol we're working on, it's clearly identified. And, you know, if it's a patient coming in with particularly a non-surgical and sometimes with surgical things, it's always three, maybe four things. I always want to see if they're going to be able to do it first. The exam continues as the patient leaves and, and I have them come back the next visit because were they capable of not just understanding to do the exercises or, you know, putting the effort in, but were they motor capable? Did they have the internal sense with their body to be able to do some of these things? You get some of these people that are very athletic or very, you know, performing arts kind of folks. They do it perfect. They're doing it exactly the way you can move on to that trickier, you know, motor control issues aren't as big of a problem. Great. We move right on to the next level. Other people that may need to be worked on so much for them for a while. So you can't get ahead or back and forth. Uh, like you, you ask, and I know it's on the list of questions about, do I have any like articles or papers or things that I always have liked? I mean, I think it's always good to read lots of journals and do different things. But the one article I put on that I sent you the, the, uh, information on was sort of a, an article about uh, a layered approach uh, for examining the hip. And what I like about it isn't that it's earth shattering information, but it very succinctly describes the idea that you should look at the, you know, an osseous layer, the ligamentous layer, the musculoskeletal and the neuromuscular effects and sort of balance these out and make sure that you look at each one individually 
and then look at them in their interactions. And sort of always looking at any kind of injury, not just as a specific injury, but what its global effect is. We always talk about the whole body, but sometimes this sort of ability to zoom in and out on a problem repeatedly while you're treating someone. And as they improve in one area, well, now it's time to re-examine some of these other issues. You know, person's doing really well with this repair, but yeah, like let's say an ACL. Yeah, but how really well is that? You know, they didn't have to repair a meniscus, but how well they were complaining of pain there. Well, gee, am I looking at a restriction? Is there a coronal ligament tightness? Are we seeing some other capsular restriction around it? Are there other sort of non-dynamic tissue that's involved? Well, we have to work on that a little more before we can engage further close chain quad stuff to a higher level. I think those things uh, will always suit us well in the, as we go through, no matter what particular skill set or widgety tools we also learn, you know, like, again, uh, Graston tools or any kind of, uh, you know, uh, use of tool work on people or other uh, manual techniques are used, but it's not so much the tool, it's the choice of when and where you put it into your recovery plan that really has the greatest effect in my mind. I think that's a uh, 100% true. And I think with experience, you are able to identify this better. So probably with your experience, you recognize super quick the patterns and like what you do now, what this patient needs, and you have this the vision of this big picture, as you said, zoom in as well. So I think that's the, the, the abilities you develop over time and you kind of work on that uh, through the years and through your experience and losing patients and not solving cases and then trying to think again, what I should have done, what, what did I... Um, what did I do better and like all of these these things that we learned with experience right oh I think so and and like I say I don't think there's any of us who treat patients who always get it right we always have to like make adjustments everybody has to to make changes adapt adjust and then sometimes and guess what we have to consult and we brought it up before you have to be able to say I have to consult to someone else on this case. I have a blind spot today. Somehow I'm not seeing this through the way I should. Let's see what someone else thinks. And I think the more we can develop those sort of collegial relations with others in and without in, in our in our own peer group or in our practice, uh, the better it is for patients overall. So, um, so how do you approach and communicate with these different types of patients to have clinical success? We already talked a, a lot about different ways to do that. Do you have any special tip, anything that you want to add on this topic? I think it's always good to use an analogy in some case as to what's going on that describes what you expect to see when a patient does something. I think far too often we tell patients to do things and, oh, it might hurt. Well, then tell them, well, this is how it's going to feel. You're going to have pain likely to be in this part of your arm. You're going to have a weird sensation that's going to show up sometimes, not to let that scare them. I think the communication needs to be very, very balanced in that this bit of information I'm telling you relates exactly to this activity I'm having you do. When you do this activity, we expect this. If you don't have that, then we want to change what we're doing. Be very pointed and exactifying early on about what the expectations are. If something's going to be painful, I don't tell people, well, it might hurt a little. I'm going to tell them this is going to be painful. You know, or if someone's like, 
well, this is, I need, you need to work on this mobility. If it's going to be very slow, I say, you're going to work on it. You're not going to see a lot of headway right away. I let them know that I go, it's going to, going to take you a bigger effort to do this. If I expect quicker results, I tell them that. But we try to be very particular about those bits of information so that that person has sort of a quantitative and qualitative expectation of what we're asking them to do and how it comes out. Not sort of a generalized thing. Be very specific. So, yeah, I think uh, setting expectations to the patient since the beginning and explaining everything that you expect to see I think you build the trust so that you show that you know exactly what you're doing and you know exactly what you expect and you create these expectations on the patient. So I think that leads them to trust more in you on the treatment because you are telling exactly everything's going to happen. So they know that, you know, so I think that helps on this, on the, on the, the patient trusting on you in trusting in you and engaging on the treatment. So I think that's very important, right? Yes. I agree. Yeah, it's funny, you know, these are, they seems like these are direct concepts. I don't think there are things people don't think about, but I think a lot of times when we, we hear them again or we reiterate it to ourselves during the workday, it can have a positive effect. It can make a difference. Well, super, super tips. Uh, I hope everyone is enjoying and, and writing down everything. So let's jump to the three final questions. Uh, so what is your favorite source of information? I know you already mentioned the article. Do you have something else to add here that you like? Well, I think for me, I'm like, I've kind of grown over the years. Before I used to, you know, subscribe more to some journals. But now I, I look for other bits of information. on other. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I listen to a lot of people. I follow a lot of people online. And as they represent or show articles, I mean, I still read some art articles that come out mostly course related things that that are in the syllabus i always recommend to people that after you take a class if there's some you know most classes have this big long syllabus take the time to actually read through some of those because they're absolutely wonderful usually the research that goes in when people do courses it's great to actually see the background information and, and uh how that applies directly you often pick up more tips that expand what you learned in a con ed class by reading some of those articles later in the year on a snowy day or a rainy day or whatever, where it depends on where you live. And I think that that's, that's really a very important aspect. But I also think going ahead and stepping out of, out of our profession and making sure you're looking at other things that show up and what kind of reference they put to them, because you'll pick up PT journal references and different things that come through from allied things, you know, strength and conditioning journals, sports medicine, you know, all the bone and joint stuff that comes out of Europe that way, you know, rheumatology, all those journals all have interesting things that have reflect components of what you're doing based on well, what depends on what your practice skill area you're practicing in. But I, I really like the idea of stepping out of that and looking at other professional journals. Plenty of resources to, to look into. Um, and what would be the best advice you give to the clinicians that are starting their careers? I would say always try to find someone you can share your information with that becomes a colleague for life. I'm, I'm lucky to have friends that I talk to still for many, many years. And I think as well, don't get caught up with trying to have to do everything all at once. Think about if you sort of develop an interest in an area, 
go ahead, De develop into it more fully. Get a basic understanding through, uh, people have already spent a lot of time, energy, effort, and brain power developing well-demonstrated skill set areas. You can go through a series of courses and it will codify and contain your mind into a pattern that then you can always add or change or learn another one. But the more you can sort of have that additional information, because you learn a lot in school. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. The, the education is wonderful, but we want to also then expand into some particular practice area. The more you can get some of that early on, I think it always helps. Last question. What personal abilities or qualities that you think are important to become a successful therapist? I think you have to be empathetic. You have to, oh, you can't, this can't get to where it's, where it's a, an assembly line. We have days that are busier. We have days when, you know, there are people will test your patients sometimes because they're just people and we're just people too. You always have to have the empathy to put yourself in their shoes and feel what they're going through and not only the injury, but what, how are the injuries affecting their life? The more you can do that and the more you can focus on the observation and listening to what they're saying, but also listening to what their body is doing, whether that's through tactile, palpatory skill sets, not always trying to go to the next test, sometimes just letting ourselves actually feel what's going on. Uh, that's a developed skill, but you'll, then you'll make better choices and you won't have to do every test. You'll, you're, you'll, it, you're, their body will tell you in some direction as you move into more specifics what you have to look at more. Yeah, so I think uh, this observation skill is uh, including also like the, the way that the patient is in that day. So sometimes they don't feel good. They are not in a good day. They don't feel like moving or they don't want to do much. You just have to be able to adapt um, and not try to make them do everything, for example, on that day uh, because they may not come back. So... I think it's all of these little things that we talked about. They are all important to be successful and you have to learn how to adapt and try to approach the patient in different um, ways according to the way that they are, the point that they are in their lives and what are they doing and how they're feeling. And I have multiple patients that work the whole day in construction and doing a lot of things. And then you, they get there and they want to give them a lot of exercise. They're like, I'm, I'm tired. I work the whole day. So sometimes you have to change yeah. our plan and be flexible and try to feel, have a feel of like how they are uh, feeling and pay attention to their words and their behavior and try to adapt to be successful and get the, the best out of them on that specific day. Right. So and, and celebrate your success. Patients sometimes, you can have a patient who has a, a significant problem, a hard problem to solve. They don't even know it's a hard problem to solve. You take them through a, a plan of care and treatment and you solve it. And they think, oh, this was easy. Look at how easy I recovered from this. But you know it was hard. You need to celebrate yourself for getting that done. It goes a long way to not burning out or having problems down the line. Remember what you do has value and, uh, and so, you know, it's okay to celebrate. You don't have to have a partner or anything, but to yourself, always celebrate those positive results. Yeah. We have to remember that uh, our little success every day and, and be happy about it because I think that's what keep us going and motivate us because 
we have a lot of difficult cases that we are not able to figure out as well. So true. Right. You have to give you some little joys every day. Yeah. And I mean, it, those things over time, I mean, it's, it's the things that make me still love treating patients. I mean, I love treating patients. I really still enjoy it as, as much in some ways more than when I got, got out of school years and years and years ago. I, I yes. mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's uh, one of those things that allows us in our profession to always have somewhere else to, to move into, always more to learn. And as long as you're getting those positive results, you're giving yourself the positive feedback that makes you want to keep doing it. Yeah, I imagine I graduated nine years, nine years ago and you have like 30. So I imagine in 20, 20 some plus 21 years from now, how I'm going to look back and see how much I progress uh, on my way of treating patients. So I think that uh, it's probably very nice to look back and see like your career, like all the steps that you pass through all the phases and how you are right now comparing you as a therapist as 30 years before. So I think that's probably very cool. Well, and I'm very, I'm very optimistic person. I'm optimistic about the profession and the students, the young, the younger uh, therapists that are coming out. I've had nothing but very positive experiences with numbers of people who are just starting their career and the effort professionalism that's put into what they're doing for patients makes me very positive about where we're going as a profession. Just a, it's that part of it. I could not say enough about, I mean, I think we're getting so many smart driven people into therapy that uh, want to make the profession more than it is and improve it from where it is. And, you know, to me that, that bodes well for the future. I'm glad to hear that. That's very good. So, John, if people want to know more information about you, where they can find it? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Okay. I'm on LinkedIn. I work, uh, you know, it's uh, it's going to have my connection or something. If someone needs to, you know, they were curious or had a question, they can send me an email. I don't mind. It's fine. Okay, good. I'm going to to put your, yeah, your LinkedIn profile link on our show notes so people can connect to you and uh, with you. And I just want to um, thank you. Uh, for taking the time to talk to me today. Uh, I think it was very nice. A lot of uh, good insights about the way of treating and how to approach patients and all the those little things that are so important on our day-to-day -day and all of the different skills that we have to develop uh, to be successful therapies and have good results with and help our patients. So I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Th and thank you for having me. Like I say, Always great to talk to a colleague. Questions, suggestions, or topics you want to hear about, talk to me on ptprotalk.com. Join our email list to receive updates and new episodes and subscribe here. Tell your friends about it and be sure to share. Also, leave us a review and let us know what you think. We are going to publish today's video recording on my YouTube channel, so you can check the link out in the show notes. Thanks for joining us and I'll see you next time.